Well, if you have your Bibles, I want to <laughs> invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs. Last week, you'll remember, we officially started uh, the book of Proverbs after we uh, had our introduction. And uh, we began the first of what I have told you uh, are three sections to the book of Proverbs. And you'll remember I told you that section one is chapter uh, one through uh, chapter seven. And it's built around the phrase, my son. I also told you that, uh, if you remember, that in the first seven chapters, there's 15 admonitions that are laid out to us as God's son in an inspirational application. The personal instruction of God to us uh, and his sons that, uh, that we should, uh, as I told you a couple of weeks ago, that will make you ten times better. And I ran you back to Daniel and showed you how that when Daniel and his friends uh, got into the Word of God and did what God wanted them to do and then were put to the test against all of the wise men, the magicians and all of the astrologers and all the wise men of Babylon, that uh, God's boys were ten times better. And I showed you how that's exactly uh, what happens in your life and in your world uh, when you get into the Word of God and you, you get it all uh, put together. And uh, then I, I showed you... Uh, uh, how that we're going to use the paragraph marks. You're going to see that uh, by in a book of Proverbs, anyhow, uh, the paragraph marks are, are absolutely key. And for the most part, we will work through that paragraph section by paragraph section, and, and that'll help you. And um, I, I gave you the instructions of a father and the law of thy mother. And I told you how that I, I don't know of two greater uh, concepts uh, in all of the Bible for uh, for you young families uh, and to show you the structure of what a Christian family should be. And uh, I explained its application to us in a practical way. The father leads the family. He sets down the instructions and, uh, and how the family will operate. <clears throat> you know, in a family, the instructions of a father is, is everything. It'll make or break the family. And I, we talked about the problem today on epidemic proportions of the of the uh, failure of the family, the failure of how uh, the family has been fractured today. A father leads. A strong biblical father will lead his family through the tough times that all families go through. You know, there'll never be a family that doesn't go through adversity uh, in, in their time. There'll never be a family that doesn't have to struggle with things and go through things. And a, a father, his job is he, he leads them through the tough times. A good biblical father will be the anchor that holds the values in place. Because as we go through time, values change. You can see it around us in everything we do. And a biblical father who leads, he, he's the anchor. He holds the values of those principles in place. He's the rock for the family to look to and lean on uh, when they go through uh, their tough times. He's the compass that sets the, uh, the, the course for the family, the moral compass, the spiritual compass, the compass by which uh, when the world tries to blow his family off course, he holds the line because his compass is pointed in the right direction. He's the light. He's the light that leads his family through the uncertainty of darkness, which unfolds in, in every family. You know, when I, I said that he's the strength for the family when the family is weak. And I told you last week that there's no greater responsibility or privilege in all the world than to be a father. We see that in a spiritual application in our own church. I've told you before many, many times how that in your life and my life as Christians, that there's seven basic stages of spiritual growth that a person goes through. Uh, when you get saved, the Bible says that uh, you're a babe in Christ. And babies need a lot of care. They need a lot of help. But as babies grow, they go through stages of growth. And as a Christian grows from a spiritual baby just being born again, he or she will go through spiritual growth uh, in the same way. And I showed you how that the Bible talks about babies. Then it talks about little children. Then it talks about children. Then it talks about young men. And all these are pictures in the Bible of what everybody should go through in your spiritual growth level. Bringing you from the adolescence of being a new creature in Christ Jesus, a baby Christian, up to the point where you begin to grow through the process. But the fifth one is the one that I've talked about many, many times and we've laid it out before, and that's the spiritual growth level of a father. 
And you'll actually go through that level. The next one after that will be elders. And elders in the church have a very specific function and a job in helping the pastor. The last one will be the aged. And that'll be somebody that not necessarily uh, is 100 years old physically, but uh, maybe in their 60s or 70s or 80s and through the experience of life and the growth through the Word of God have really become uh, valuable. But I want to go back to the fathers for a moment. Number five. That's where you really become valuable to this church. That's where you really become an asset to what we're doing here. Because when you get to that point, and it illustrates what I'm trying to talk to you about in your own family. You see, when you're single, you can do whatever you want to do, pretty much. And even after you're married, even though you're married, you can pretty much still do what you want to do. Many times you do it as a couple. But when that baby comes, your world changes, Everything about what you used to have the freedom to do, you can't do anymore. I mean, now your whole world has, has turned around. Now that baby takes precedent. Now you have responsibility to it. You have accountability to it. Now you're not footloose and fancy free just to go do whatever you want to do because everything goes back to your responsibility as a parent, okay? Take that in a spiritual application now. When you grow spiritually in this church or any church... You should come to the point where you become a spiritual father to people. And just as a physical father, your life changes. When you enter into that place where you become a spiritual father to somebody, or mother if you're a lady, but it talks about the the father aspect, your world changes. Again, now, in a spiritual sense, within the structure of the church, you don't have the freedom just to go do whatever you want to do. Now, if you're discipling somebody or you're in charge of a prayer group or you won somebody to Christ or you're working with somebody or we've given you somebody to work with, they become a responsibility and accountability for you. You can't just say, well, you know what? I want to go to the mall tonight, so I'm not going to disciple you. You just can't simply say, well, I want to go do this, so... I'm not going to be <clears throat> available for you. Now, your responsibility goes back to uh, the ministry. You see it for what it is. You realize as a father, you have definite responsibilities of leadership that you've got to fulfill in dealing with people. So, you know, in both senses, in a physical family sense, father is vital. But what will make this church the church that it really needs to be will be you growing to the place where you come to that point where you become a father. You pick up the range. You pick up responsibility. You start working with somebody. You start helping this, getting involved with it. You simply don't just sit on the sidelines anymore. Now you're responsible for other things that go along uh, around you. We, we also saw the law of the mother, didn't we? How that the mother takes the instructions of the father... Uh, and enforces the law in the family. She holds the line of accountability, uh, working together and training of the family. And then we saw uh, the great lesson in verse 9, the ornament of grace to thy head and the chains about thy neck. And I showed you how that in a, that's going back to your family in the judgment seat of Christ. It's going back to everything that your life that is responsible as you uh, are responsible for your family and have to face the judgment seat of Christ. It, it also dealt in an inspirational way about your own rewards and inheritance that you will or will not get at the judgment seat of Christ. And you know, for you as young couples, but all for all of us really, but for you young couples, but especially for those of you who are starting out, you just now got family, or your kids are young, still young, still pliable, still workable. It, it, in the Bible, it doesn't get any better than that. Taking those two principles alone and, and molding your life into those as a husband and wife team together, uh, it, will, it will make you or break you when it comes to uh, your family. Now today, <clears throat> we're going to look at our second set of verses that are marked out by the paragraph marks, and we're going to stay with that as we develop yet another great concept out of this book. And that's basically what we're going to do all through Proverbs. We're going to lay out the verses, and then we're going to take the concepts, we're going to develop them, and take all the material as we develop it, and we can apply it however we need to. Now today, I want to begin reading in verse 10 at the paragraph mark, and we'll come up to verse 19 at the end of this section. And then if we would go on next week, we'll see that the paragraph mark in verse 20. So, verses 10 through 19. He says this, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. 
If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood, let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause, let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down to the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We will fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk not thou uh, in the way with them, and refrain thy foot from their path. For their feet uh, run to evil, and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. And they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privately for their own lives. Uh, so are the ways of every one that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you today for, <clears throat> for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you so much. And we thank you, Father, for the fact that uh, we have the privilege to open up this book today and uh, for these good people that are here. And, and Holy Spirit of God, we ask you to take uh, this time that we've set aside uh, to get into your word. And Lord, I know that as a man, as a, even as a pastor, as a preacher, as a Christian, I don't have anything that can, can help these people. It has to be the, the union of your spirit uh, in my heart as we convey the word of God to them. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you'll do that today. Help us to look into this verse deeply and see all the things that we need to put in our lives and encourage us with it, admonish us with it, edify it with it, and give us all that we need. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For sake we ask it. Amen. Now, I want to draw your attention, first of all, to verse 10, because uh, here again, my son. Now, this is the second time in this chapter that we've seen the end. This is the second admonition to us as a son. We want to pay particular attention to them when we find that. And, uh, and, 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 and here, one more time, look what he says. I can't impress upon you, because it's the theme coming through this book, or one of the sub-themes, over and over and over again. I can't impress upon you how important it is to look at and evaluate and understand the company uh, which you keep. Because look again in verse 10. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. And again, it's about hanging out with the wrong crowd. It's about hanging out with people who want to entice you. We're going to talk about that today. But I need, to, I need to explain something to you here first that I think that not only will help you here, but it will help you throughout the Bible the rest of your life if you remember it and put it into your Bible uh, to help develop this passage today. But it's a great key to the Bible. In the Bible, there are certain words that will define things differently from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, I, normally we would think that if a word meant one thing here, it would mean something here. That may be true in life, but in the Bible, it's not true. You're going to find there are certain words in the Bible that define something differently from the Old Testament than it does from the New Testament. It's the failure to see it will lead you off track, and that's why I try to point them out to you on Thursday night or whenever we, uh, we talk about it or when they come up and I try to show you. In the Bible, there are certain words that will define things differently from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, the reason for that is, is the Old Testament is dealing with men under the law. So he looks at them differently. So he, he will talk to them differently. In the New Testament, they're not under the law anymore. They're under grace. So you have two different, complete different situations where God is dealing with a man one way, and then he's dealing with a man the other way. Another reason is that in the Old Testament, we know this, that it's before the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he changed everything on planet Earth. Everything was changed the way God views man, the way God deals with man, and the way that man deals with God. And so we see that not only is it different from that aspect, but because of that, there'll be certain words in the Bible that will define itself or mean something in the New Testament, but it won't mean the same thing in the Old Testament. Another great example of that is in the Old Testament when a man died, he had to go to Abraham's bosom, couldn't go to heaven. And there are some legitimate reasons for that, which most of you already know. But once Christ came down and died and paid the sin debt, Bible says that he led captivity captive. From that point on, everybody that died went to heaven in that sense. So you begin to see that there's some things that are different. Let me, let me show you what I mean. We've talked about this before. Take the word soul. Now, the word soul means something differently in the Old Testament than it does in the New Testament. 
In the New Testament, when we talk about the word soul, we're talking about uh, in your life, in the fact that when God made you, he made you a body, soul, and spirit. And uh, when you got saved in the New Testament, we know that the Bible says that uh, you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. We know that Colossians chapter 2 says that, uh, uh, you know, that a a spiritual operation took place that set apart your flesh from your soul. And so when you you look at the soul in a New Testament aspect, uh, we think of it as the soulish body, the spiritual body that nobody can see. We don't ever equate it in the New Testament with your physical body, unless you're an unsaved man. Because when you got saved, that's what really happened when you got saved. God took your body and your soul, which was stuck together, and he separated them out. And that makes you a new creature in Christ Jesus. And then he sealed you with the Holy Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, that didn't happen. In the Old Testament, you have men who their bodies and their souls are stuck together all through the Old Testament. And so my point is this, when you look at the word soul in the Bible, in the New Testament, it'll mean one thing, it'll mean a New Testament Christian, but in the Old Testament, the word soul is used interchangeably for the word body, because it's stuck together. You'll never find that in the New Testament. Every time you find in one of Paul's writings where he talks about the soul, he's talking about the spiritual body that's inside you that is eternal. In the Old Testament, He's talking about your physical body because the two are still stuck together. That's a good example of this would be Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, where it says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. See, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, how how can that be? How can your soul die? Your soul's eternal. Your soul can't die. When you die, your body dies, your soul goes to heaven or hell, it's eternal. But there's a place where it says that the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Because he's talking about your body. Because in the Old Testament, the word soul is used differently than it is in the New Testament. Now, I'll give you that example to show you what I want to show you today. And that is the word sinner. The word sinner is the same exact way. It means something totally different in the Old Testament than the way we find it in the New Testament when Paul writes. And you have to understand these uh, to understand what he's saying here. When the Bible uses the word sinner in the New Testament, it's always talking about an unsaved man. Now, I know, I know, we talk about the fact that I'm saved, but I'm still a sinner. That, that, I understand what you're saying, but biblically and technically, that's not true. But I understand what you're saying. I say it too. If I'm dealing with somebody and, and he's having a tough time understanding what sin is, and they may have a, 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 a coming out of a, a bad background, uh, and they, they'd say, "Well, you know what? I I don't want to get saved because uh, you know I you know I, I I just you know I'm a too big a sinner." Well, I, I'm going to explain to him that in one sense, I'm saved, but I'm still a sinner. See, I mean that's a practical way to get your point across, but theologically. If we've got right down to the theological aspect of it, that's not true. When you got saved, the Bible says, God separated your soul from your flesh. He seals your soul with the Holy Spirit of God, and that soul can never sin. Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, he that is born of God does not commit sin. Now, nobody understands that doctrine today, and that's why in all the new Bibles and all the churches, you'd other churches you'd go to, because they can't handle that verse, they've got to take the word commit out and put in the word practice, because they can't conceive of you and I not committing sin because we know that we sin every day. But what they don't understand is that my soul doesn't sin. You know what sins about me every day? Well, I got it down to every other day now. But you know what sins about me? My flesh. So you want to remember that when you talk about the word sinner, when you got saved, a new, a new birth took place. A, a, a separation of your flesh, your body from your soul. And now, as the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, this is what we mean when we say you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things become new. So now you're no longer, in God's sight, a sinner. God doesn't look at you as a sinner after you're saved anymore. God now looks at you as his son, see? Sinner, son, and servant. Remember, we've talked about it many, many times. Now, follow me here. In the Old Testament, 
There is no new birth. In the Old Testament, there is no separation from your body and your soul. In the Old Testament, there was no Holy Spirit of God like there was in the New Testament. There's no new birth. There's no born again. There's no Holy Spirit of God taking up uh, residency inside you, as 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says. None of that happens. In the Old Testament, uh, but just like their body and their soul are still connected, and that's why you find in the Old Testament the word sinner is used differently than it is in the New Testament. In the New Testament, it's strictly used for unsaved people. But in the Old Testament, it's used for anybody. It's used for anybody who has bad character. It's used for anybody who does evil. It, it, it deals with anybody and it's used exclusively for anybody who has a reputation of hurting people or doing wicked things. Because there's no salvation in the Old Testament like you and I have. He's dealing with Israel. There's no born again. There's no new birth. So the word sinner means something completely different. And that's important because when we come through Proverbs in just a minute and we look at some sinners here who want to entice you, it's not just dealing with unsaved people. It's dealing with anybody in your life. Anybody in your life. Now, if I learned anything in life, I have learned this. And you know this is true. A saved person, somebody going to heaven, can do everything an unsaved person can do except die and go to hell. I mean, and, and, you know, and, and, and how he can do this is because Christians, some of them, will simply, as the Bible says, get saved, get separated, and then you know as well as I do, there's a battle of the flesh versus the spirit. And the Bible talks about in the book of Galatians. The Bible talks about in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. It talks about us as Christians walking after the flesh instead of walking after the spirit. You give me a Christian who truly gets saved, I don't care who he is. You, or she's it. You give me a Christian who truly gets saved and they stop following God and walking with God and get enticed by the world and they'll go back to doing exactly what they did before they got saved. You know why? Not because they lost their salvation, but because they decided to walk back after the flesh than follow the Spirit. And the great comparison there, and we certainly don't have time to go into it today, but the greatest comparison you'll ever see that explains that is that comparison between Galatians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But you need to keep all these things in mind when we look at what we're about to look at. Now look at verse 10. He says, my son, if sinners, now we know who the sinners are, anybody in your world, it can be a saved person who walks after the flesh and not after the spirit who maybe not is a sinner in the sense of, of, of God, the way God looks at them, but are in the fact that they're walking after the flesh. And the first thing I want you to see is this, the enticement of sinners in your life, saved and lost. Wicked people in general. Now, the definition to entice somebody will be always to lure them away. To entice somebody will always be to lure them from something good to something bad. Uh, the greatest way I can illustrate that is when you go fishing. We've got so many fishermen in here that uh, I'm surprised uh, we don't have more people saved because you're supposed to be fishers of men. But anyway, <laughs> we got some great fishermen in here that know where the fish are. I mean, I was never a good fisherman. My dad was a great fisherman. I could never be patient. My best way to fish is with a hand grenade. I think that would be a great way to do it. But anyway, you know, when you go fishing, you have a fishing lure, and it'll be shiny or sparkly or dwiggly, and it'll go through different things in the water, and you throw it out there, and what you do is to entice a fish. A fish is just kind of checking it out, watching it go by. He's hungry. He sees this flirty, flatterly thing going through there, spinning up and down and getting out bubbles, and he sees this thing that looks like something he wants to eat, and you lure him to it, see? You bring him in. And that's exactly a great illustration of what sinners do. They try to show you something sparkly and shiny, and it looks like it's a real good deal. 
It looks like, man, this is what I really wanted. This is what I've been talking about. This is what I really need. And it looks shiny. It looks all of the way things that a fish looks at. It says, man, this is exactly what I want. But in both cases, the same thing happens. You get caught in a trap. If sinners entice thee. The word is never used in a good connotation in the Bible. <laughs> or fishing for that matter. But it's never used in a good connotation in the Bible. James chapter 1 verse 14 says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. To entice somebody is to, to simply uh, allure them or lure them away for something good to do something evil. An act or a practice of enticing to evil. To exploit somebody. Now, another great example of this is we all hear other stories how men on the Internet get on the Internet and they'll try to get young girls or try to get young boys to meet them someplace. And that's a great example of enticement. Parents who don't watch their kids on the computer, the kids get on there, some guy who's a predator, he preys on that stuff, he lures those kids in, he talks to them, he knows exactly what to say, he talks to them, he finds out from them that they're not happy with this, or they're lonely here, or they don't have that, and then he entices them. That's how it works. That's how it always works in life. Now, when somebody tries to entice you to join them, it will always be, in the lowest common form of denominator understanding it, their support system. And you need to understand that. This is very important. This is, this is enticement 101. Yeah, I mean, they, they have people who try to entice you to do things with them. They need you for one thing. If they're already a sinner and they're already in the world and they're already an out-of-fellowship Christian, misery loves company. And they want to draw you in with them because if they're under conviction, if they're saved, that drawing you in supports them that they're really not that bad because look who's with me. See how it works? That's exactly how it works. And that's exactly what they do. They have no credibility of their own. They have nothing going with God. They have nothing going with the Bible. So they entice you to come and be with them and they get the, they get the gratification that they're credible when you stand by their side and do, do things with them. You see it in religion all the time, if you're smart enough to look for it. And I think it's absolutely vital that you understand how this thing works. The reason why religions and people entice you to come to be with them is so you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, get, you'll quit what you're doing, go to be with them, and when, uh, when you're dumb enough to do that, you give them the support and the credibility that they're looking for. By joining them, by enticement, you lend credibility to them. You ever wonder why a Jehovah Witness operates the way he does? You ever understand why a Mormon operates the way that they do? If you would ever stop and lay it out and study it out and get it into perspective, you'll find out that there are, there are seven what we call American cults. And this is not a bashing of anybody's religion or beliefs or whatever. I'm just telling you the facts of life here. You're going to find that within the American history from the beginning of America to where we're at today, you're going to find that God has moved across America and what we know in church history, we call it the seven great awakenings. Now, what is that? The seven great awakenings uh, started when this country had first begun uh, to become a country. When we find the Declaration of Independence, when the country was first formed, this country was formed on the principles of God and the Word of God, but very quickly, as it always happens in history, very quickly, uh, right behind America becoming a, a, a nation, the influx from Europe of, of Unitarianism came in and destroyed what the founding fathers or what many people were believing. You know what God did? God raised up two great men, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. And they preached in Boston and preached in the commons and preached up there in the New England states. And you know what God did with them? When America started to slide into apostasy, God raised up two men and brought about the first great awakening. The Great Awakening is a renewal of spirituality in this country, going back to God. Well, you find it all down through America's history. There were six more times 
when God had to bring about a revival in this country. You'll find it six more times where apostasy begins to creep in. And I told you this way, way back many, many times that all history is nothing more than God moving in a direction to do something and the devil moving in a direction to stop it. That's what you have here. God built this country on a great principle of the Word of God. Most of the founding fathers, if they were not Christians, they certainly believed the Bible was the Word of God. <laughs> and I would say to say that they believed more about the Bible than most preachers do today, and they were lost, many of them. But what the devil did is he tried at every turn to try to do that. And so what the devil did, every time God opened up a great outpouring of his spirit, then the devil brought in a false religious cult to offset it. And when you look at, when you look at, when you look at Jehovah Witnesses, when you look at Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, Church of Christ, Unity, the Charismatic Movement, Christian Scientists, you're going to find that these are what we call the American cults. These have no roots anywhere than other in America. These religions are very shallow. For anybody who views the whole context of, of religion and what God is doing in the Bible in the span of what God's doing, you find these seven American cults all come up in the 1800s. They have no history to them. They don't go back through the Bible. The Jehovah Witnesses started in 1850. The Mormons started in 1820. The Seventh-day Disadvantages started in 1830. 1850 was the Church of Christ. 1889 was Unity and the Charismatic Movement in 1900 and the Christian Science in, 19, in 1840. I mean, none of them go back to the 1700s. None of them go back to the 1600s. None of them go back. In fact, when you lay it out, and this is just the facts. This is not some Baptist bashing these groups. This is just the facts. You can go to a public library. You don't even have to get any Christian books. You can go to the Kansas City Public Library and find out what I'm telling you is true. They have no history. There's a 1,900-year gap from, from where Christianity started to where these guys show up. So what happened for 1,900 years? You couldn't find anybody in 15, 16, 18, uh, 18, 1,700, 900 that believed anything these guys believed. Where were they? What happened? You mean that God was silent and everybody on planet Earth from, from the time of Christ to 1,800 just died and went to hell without the truth? No, not at all. When you understand history, you understand the movement of God, and you understand what God is doing, you see that these cults crop up to out encounter the seven great awakenings that God is pouring out and bringing about. Now, these groups, and this is my point, have absolutely no credibility. Every one of them was not in existence before 1820. The only people that they get are the ones that are so absolutely inept when it comes to the Bible and history. Uh, as a church and a religion, they have no credibility. So what they do 24-7, why they go out in such droves to bring people in is because they have no history. They have no credibility. And when they bring people in, it gives them that false sense of credibility. Well, look at us. We must be a real church. Look at all the people here. And that's what happened. And that's exactly what takes place. Now, let me just say this to you on a lighter note here. If you're going to go to hell, and I don't recommend it, but if you have your heart set on it, let me just give you a little bit of advice. Don't go to hell as an American cult person. Uh, if you're going to go, I don't want you to go, and I do anything in my power to help you keep you from going, but if you're just hell-bent on it, <laughs> that's a good word, if you're just, if you're just got to get there, don't go there as a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon. I mean, listen, going to hell will be hard enough. Going to hell will be shameful enough. Going to hell and denying Christ, without a doubt, will be the most ridiculous, hardest, shameful thing you ever do. Do not add to it the embarrassment of going as a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon. <laughs> now, I'm telling you. I mean, if you want to go to hell in, a, in, 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 in classic style, become a Baptist. They got some history to them. If you want to go to hell uh, in class, become a Catholic. They got a lot of history to them. If you really want to go to hell, go as a, a Presbyterian. They got a lot of history, back to 1500. 
Go as a Lutheran, back to 1550. Go as a Episcopalian, all the way back to 1500. I mean, th- those are, go to hell in a Cadillac. Now, if you want the flagship of going to hell, go as a Buddhist, a Taoist, or a, one of those Eastern. They've been around for centuries before Christianity. So, I mean, if you're, gonna, if you're just bent on going to hell, go in, in a Cadillac. Going to hell as an American cult is like going to hell in a 1963 Volkswagen bus with the engine blown up in it. And there's no credibility. There's absolutely nothing that sustains them. Do you know why those groups work 24-7 in every major country on this earth? You know why they hit every door in this city two or three times a year to entice you to become like them? Do you know why they tell you that they're the only true church and all mainstay religion is wrong? Do you know why they tell you that if you're a Baptist, how wrong you are? Or if you're in mainline Christianity, how wrong it is? It's simple, cult 101. They have no credibility, so they have to work 24-7 to prove that they do And they entice you to become one of them so they can have that feeling, we're real, we're real, we're real, when they know they're not. It's just that simple. Religions entice you all the time. They don't follow the Bible. If they did, they couldn't be what they are. The Jehovah Witnesses, when they first started in the middle of the 1800s, they used the King James Bible. But they were getting their tails kicked by Baptists so long, by about 1950, they had to rewrite and come up with their own Bible that did away with everything the King James Bible said and put in their Bible what they wanted to believe. That's nice, isn't it? Mormons did the same thing. They couldn't stay with the King James Bible, so they had to come up with another book. They had to find moron out there with them golden plates and, and come up with another book. Because they can't stay with the Bible. Oh, I want to tell you something. No matter what we are or how screwed up we can get at times, we're going to believe one book all the way to the end. Amen. That's all there is to it. There's nothing we're going to add to it or take away from it. If it doesn't stand on its own, then throw it out. And it'll stand on its own, I guarantee you. See? And you can't, you can't, you can't build a church by just enticing people away from other churches. Just because the people are weak. You can't, that's why, that's why you can't build a strong church with those kind of people. You build a church by building people, not stealing them from somebody else. That's why we never put a sign up up front. We, if we, were, we were here in the other place for six years before I ever put a sign up. Because I knew that the moment I did, all I would find out is I would get people that were mad at a pastor down here, driving by here, saw our sign, going to come this Sunday so they can get mad at me. That's all it is. And I don't need that. I come to the conclusion that the Bible says, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. I still believe that principle. I believe that my job is standing in the pulpit and exalting the Lord Jesus Christ, uplifting Christ. It changes your life. And then you be my signs. There's some of you that you can't explain how you got here other than somebody else brought me. We got a sign out there now, but you'd have to look hard to see it. Looks like a Coca-Cola sign. But some of you, almost everybody here got here because of one reason. Not because you saw the sign. Not because, because you heard somebody say, you want to know the Bible? I'll tell you where you need to go. And then you came, you sampled it, and you either said, that's not for me. Or, where has this place been all my life? Amen. That's how you got here. That's how you're supposed to get here. You don't get here by build a church by stealing people. We don't entice you to come. I'm the first one to tell you, if you can find somebody else, some other pastor to teach the Bible, give you what you need better than me, you need to be there. I would. (laughs) I was going to say something, but I ain't going to say it. Now look at verse 11. If they say, come with us. Brother, the world does this 24-7 in everything you see in life. In this country, the absolute chaos of people and young people, kids murdering other people just for fun because I'm bored or some initiation of some gang, but they have been enticed by their own lust, the failure of the family, the failure of their parents. That world system, as I talked about in Daniel chapter 1, has made sure that every generation of kids in the last 50 years have grown up and gotten the slop that they need and the filth of Babylon, like I told you in in Daniel chapter 1. Lured them many times with the parents' help. Put into the world system, and then they get swallowed up. 
If they say, come with us, the enticement of leaving a moral society for one that is a nightmare. We're enticed by the world of sinners and everything around us today, especially for your kids. We watch the Disney Channel and we let our kids watch the Disney Channel because we think that that's okay. And we had a little girl on there a while back called Hannah Montana. Everybody just loved her. She ain't so great now, is she? That's the enticement of it. That's exactly what happens. It's in everything that you see. There's no safe place for your kid today outside that book. Well, I go back when I was a kid growing up. It's so subtle. You never really see it till the damage is done. They draw your kids in. They entice your kids. You think, oh, I'll handle it. No, you won't. You will not. When we were growing up, my little kids were growing up, they were limited to what they could watch on Saturday morning comics. You say, well, why is that? Well, what was off? What could hurt? And you know what? It's the principle of the thing. You had Mickey Mouse. You have Daffy Duck. You have Wile E. Coyote. You have Heckle and Jekyll. You have Bugs Bunny. You have the Road Runner. You have Porky Pig. Somebody says, well, what could be wrong with that? Other than they're all unclean animals out of Leviticus chapter 11, not a thing. You see what the world does? Even in the beginning, when it really doesn't mean anything, it begins that foundation of uncleanliness. Why isn't there a clean animal in that? Why is every one of those animals in Leviticus 11 unclean? And they bring it to your children. When they got past that, then all your kids want to be he-men. And they bring the he-men in. Genesis chapter 6, setting them up for the sons of renown and the sons of God. Everything we do, everything around us, everything that happens, the absolute tragedy today of the enticement, the senseless enticement of people, and especially our children, the killing of little school children, the senseless shooting of the jogger from Australia who, by, by three kids, 14, 15, and 16, because they were bored, they killed somebody. The beatings on the school bus of three boys almost beating a boy to death. The drive-by shootings of innocent bystanders just because you want to get in a gang. The killing of women and their little children. Be the, the beating of death of a World War II vet who survived the horrors of the beach landing of Okinawa, who survived being wounded and then gets beat up by a couple of teenage thugs and murdered. How does a society get to that point? How does a country get to that place where the value of life is nothing? It's real easy. It's because of enticement. It's because of a culture of video games, of violence that replaces the parents in a kid's life. That instead of a mom and dad sitting out and spending time, they give them, a, a, give them some video game that all day long they watch on the screen and they play with a thing and all they do is kill people with it. Right. It's the music and the glorification of the hip-hop rap and all of the stuff and all of the curling and the murder and glorifying of that kind of lifestyle. That's how. If sinners entice thee, and brother, they will. They will. Every person who, every young kid who ever started to smoke got enticed by somebody else doing it. Many cases, unfortunately, by their own parents. But the ads you see 24-7 uh, and you read it in magazines or wherever you go about uh, smoking uh, being a cool thing to do. In the 60s, it was, call for Philip Morris. And it was about cigarettes. In the 70s, it wanted to attract the women. And uh, Twiggy was in back then. She was a real skinny girl. And so they come up with Virginia Slims. You're enticed that that's what real people do. You're enticed that that's what real men do. You're enticed that that's what real women who are in the know do. You see it in the movies. Two soldiers in a foxhole about ready to die, going through great things. Instead of praying to God and ask them out, they share the last cigarette together. And every ordeal you see after you go through it and woo, instead of get on your knees and thank God, it's, oh, I got to have a cigarette. You saw it in the, in the TV series Mad Men, how it was all, at every time, everybody had a cigarette in their hand. 
You come up in, in, the, in my day, and it was the Marlboro Man. You know, you're a real man if you're the Marlboro Man. When I was in the military, that's all soldiers wanted to smoke was Marlboros. You know why? Because of the Marlboro Man. Every time you saw it on TV and every ad, the Marlboro Man was the real man. He was on a horse out there in the wide open skies of Montana, Wyoming, someplace. And you could see him on the horse smoking his Marlboro in a cattle drive. And he's out there in the great sky, and he's a real man. He's got his chaps on. He's got his cowboy boots. Got a big old hat on, riding a horse with 10,000 cattle in a cattle drive, smoking a Marlboro. And the, and the pitch line, the enticement is, come to where the flavor is. And stupid people bought that by the millions. Come to where the flavor is. You ever smell 10,000 cattle? <laughs> If sinners entice thee, and they will, they don't show you the cancer wards. They don't show you the lung cancer. They don't show you the throat cancer. They don't show you the results of that little round can of school in your back pocket. You think it makes your rear end look so tough. And, you, and when, you're, when you get jaw cancer and it eats your jaws out. I think the greatest ad they've ever put on is that one with that lady in the morning has to put on her wig, put it in her throat piece, put on all that stuff, and she says, now I'm ready to go out. Destroyed by smoking. If sinners entice thee, you bet they will. Listen, my friend, the only people God ever intended to have smoke in their lungs were people in hell. You see it with booze and alcohol. It's always being promoted as the cool thing to do. When your kid gets in high school, the thing is to go out and drink beer with everybody. For you older folks that it's legal, you know, they entice you every way they can. They won't let you get home from work to be with your family. No, no, no. They got to have before the real slop starts, they got to have happy hour. To entice you. You see it on TV and everything you do. Captain Morgan. The jolly pirate who runs through the adventures of life and escapes all these things. Then he winds up on ship with a bunch of wenches and a bunch of guys. And they're all drinking Captain Morgan rum. Whoa, I want to be like that. (laughs) You're caught about this budge for you. Grab the gusto. You only go around once in life. Yeah, you do. How about the old geezer that's on there with the two hot chicks on his arm and he looks up there and he say, stay thirsty, my friend. Well, my friend, in hell, you probably will. (laughs) Beer night at the ball games. The big blimp flying around said Budweiser. If sinners entice thee, they will every chance they can. Always portrayed around young couples having a beer party, drinking beer, grabbing the gusto. Off in a nightclub someplace, you know, having a little fun time, having their beer. Oh, you see it all at the ball game at the tailgate party. I mean, you walk back and I mean there's beer bottles and beer cans everywhere. Yeah, I've seen it on pictures on Facebook where people have, have, get on there and they think it's smart and cute when they, where they, they get together in a birthday party and they're all holding up their beer. I've even seen parents say, isn't that cute? If sinners entice thee, they don't show you the total addiction of the broken marriages, the families, through alcoholism. They don't show you the 10,000 innocent people killed every year by drunk drivers. They don't show you the cirrhosis of the liver or the diabetes. They don't show you the broken lives of the, uh, uh, the addicts of alcohol and drug culture. Men and women who had a future with God. Men and women who could do something great, but through the enticement of the world... Through the lust of their own self of this world. They, and their failed parents. Let me tell you something. The wisest man that ever lived said something. And boy, he was right on the money. He said, my son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. We're talking about the war on drugs. Well, we're going to have a war on drugs. We got a war on drugs. We got a war on drugs. So then we lose the war on drugs and the states are now legalizing the drugs. Look at verse 11. If they say, come with us, and they will, they will. And here's America today. Here 
here's what you and I are up against. Here's what your children are up against. Here's the enticement of your children when you allow them to be any part of this world in any way. And brother, this is America. Look at verse 11. If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our house with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one person. That's what they want with you. They want you to be one of them. They're losers. They live on a dead-end street. Their lives are a mess. Their marriage is a mess. Their kids are a mess. And they have no credibility of anything in life. And to make them feel good about themselves, they want to entice you to come be with them. And God's people are so stupid, they just do it like cattle going to the slaughter. Look at verse 11. Wait for blood. There's the merciless killing uh, that you read about every week. There's the merciless killings that go on in schools and goes on in movie theaters and goes on in, in Columbine and Sandy Hook. There's, there's the merciless killing. There isn't any safe place on this planet today other than in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 11 again. Let us lurk privately for the innocent without cause. There's the murdering, the maiming of the innocent without cause. There is the Sandy Hook. There is the Columbine. There is the Boston Marathon bomber. There is the World Trade Center in 911. There is the army base where they were killed. There is the movie theaters where they get killed. Verse 12 says, let us swallow them up alive as the grave. You see that thing? Swallow them up alive as the grave. You're alive, but you're just as good as dead. Let me tell you something. As a Christian, when the world swallows you up, as far as your spirituality is concerned, you're just as good as dead. As an unsaved man, when the world swallows you up, you're already dead in trespasses of sin. You just sealed your fate. It's just that simple. I mean, the whole, he says, let us swallow up alive as the grave. Yes, the whole family gets swallowed up. The whole generation gets swallowed up. Gets swallowed up those that go down to the pit. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, The devil, your adversary, goes about to the Lord Ryan, seeking whom he may devour. He wants to devour you. He wants to devour your family. He wants to swallow your family up while you stand by and justify what they do. I don't understand it. Let's swallow them up alive as the grave. The enticement of the world and sinners will make you as good as dead and in hell. It will destroy every good thing in your life. Look at verse 13. Here they come. Sinners entice thee. If they say, come with us, here's the end result. You want that lifestyle? You want to mock at that stuff and think it's okay for you to do it and your kid to do it and the people you hang out with to do it? You want to justify and get mad because, you know, somebody preaches against it? You want to get to that point? Well, here's your end, man. Here it is, pal. Here it is. Here's for you. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our house with spoil. Simply this, the enticement of the world and the enticement of the sinner. It will get into your life. It will get into your world. And it will destroy in time every precious thing you have. It will destroy your kids. It will destroy your wife. It will destroy your husband. It will destroy your family. It will destroy your job. It will destroy your career. It will destroy your ministry. It will destroy your relationship with God. It will take every precious thing you have and swallow it up. And what it leaves is the empty shells of people. We see it swallowed up the families, the marriages, the churches, the Bible out of your life, and a relationship with God out of your life. And all you're left is an empty shell. Your life is ruined. Your children are ruined. Your marriage is ruined. Your career is worthless. You're a dead-end street. Oh, you may go through every day all the antics that pretend. You may paint that smile on like the woman has to paint her eyebrows on. You may put all of those things out there that it's okay. But you know as well as I do, your kids have been swaddled up and you're a dead-end street. All the things of this world that will swallow you up, but mainly your family. 
Now look at verse 19. Now here's the third, my son, in verse 15. You want to mark these? They all mean something. Now here's the great wisdom of Solomon at work. This is what I'm trying to tell you about the Bible. It's why I try to tell you how you get the principles down and you use the principles. This is what I'm talking about, being smarter than the problem. He says, My son, walk not thou in the way of them. Refrain thy foot from their path. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. And they lay wait for their own blood and lurk privately for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone that is greedy of gain, which taketh away the life of the owners thereof. Now, my son, walk not in the way, thou in the way of them. Refrain thy foot from their path. Psalms 1 again says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth away of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight shall be in the law of the Lord, and in this law doth he meditate day and night. That's the key. Walking with the Lord, meditating in the, in the Word of God. Refrain thy foot from thy path. You betcha. Get on the old path, Jeremiah 6.16. Get on the good path. Get on the right path. That's where we're all about. Look at verse 16. It says, For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. In other words, there's nothing good, not one thing about them. For their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. They're like the people back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, when God looked down, we're going to destroy the world. He looked at man, and you know what he said? He said, all man's imagination is to do evil continually, and he destroyed it. And yet you're told earlier there in the New Testament, as it was in the days of Noah, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. What you're seeing today, exactly what you're seeing today. Now here's the greatest principle, and brother, you better get it. This is why a life without God is a dead-end street. You can say whatever you want to say. You can do whatever you want to do. You can justify whatever you want. But when you wind up in the gutter, when you wind up losing everything you've got, when you wind up losing everything because of your own lust and you're allowing yourself to be enticed into it. Now, the greatest principle he says here, and this is why, like I said, a life without God is a dead end street. This is why he said you follow this little this lifestyle and being enticed and your own lust and you're, 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 a, you're, as they say in prison, you're a dead man walking. That term get made into a movie and we hear about it all the time, but in a in true sense, it's, it's used for convicted men who are going to be executed. They take them on that last walk, that last walk to be executed. And uh, the jailer or the executioner, whoever, they escort him down there. A guy goes out in front of him and he's got other guys in death row on both sides. And you can hear a long haul. They call it the last mile. They made a movie about it called The Green Mile. And they walk down that thing there, and they hold him on both hands, and the priest or preacher goes with him, and a guy out in front walks down, cries out, Dead man walking! Dead man walking! That's a picture of so many of God's people, I can't even tell you. You're walking, you're alive, but 20 minutes from now, you're going to be dead. When that clock hits 12 midnight, you're dead. You're dead. Dead man walking. So he says, my son, depart from them. Walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path. He says, surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Now I want you to mark that surely in vain. I'm going to show you something here. I'm going to show you the wisdom of Solomon that if you ever get ten times smarter than the problem, you'll see these things. This is what makes, this is what makes this is what makes a Christian smarter than the problem. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Now, I told you before that there are several absolute key words in the Bible that help you always define whatever context you're in. You hear me talk about it all the time on Thursday night and many times on Monday morning or Sunday morning. Now, you look at that word net. Anytime you've got a rainy afternoon when you've got nothing to do, you get your concordance and you go through your Bible and get you one of the little yellow china markers and every time you see the word net or find it, you mark it in yellow. Verse 17 says it's in vain. Verse 18 says, verse 17 says they spread the net in vain. Verse 18 says, and they lay wait for their own blood. They lurk privately for their own life. Note that, their own blood, their own life. 
Now, let me explain this doctrinally, and the doctrinal application really brings out the practical application. Every time you find the word net in the Bible, 99% of the time, every time you find the word net in the Bible, it's going to be a reference to the Antichrist setting up a trap for the nation of Israel in the tribulation period. Every time. Maybe, nine, I'll say 99.9% of the time. There may be some place where it's just used as a net, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. But 99.9% of the time, when you find the word net in your Bible, that's why I tell you to mark it. It's going to tell you the context of the tribulation. In the, in the tribulation period, the Antichrist sets a trap for the nation of Israel. Some places, it's likened to Israel likened to a bird where he sets a, he sets a net. Sometimes it's called a snare. That's another word you want to mark. Most of the time, it's called a net. And what happens is the Antichrist puts his elaborate plan together and lays a net to snare the nation of Israel. You know, you put a net down or you put a net up here, the bird walks in, picks up the thing, the net falls down and he's trapped. That's the picture. Except the difference is that when the Antichrist lays his net down to trap the nation of Israel, he gets taken in his own trap. That sets up a great principle. That sets up a great principle. Psalms chapter 9 verse 15 says, the heathen are sunk down in the pit that they have made in the net which they have, which they hid, is their own foot taken. See that thing? That's a that's Psalms nine fifteen. That's talking about it. Psalm thirty five seven and eight says, "For without cause have they hid for me their net in a pit, which without cause they have digged for my soul." See the picture is is you dig a pit, you put a net over it, put leaves on it, and you go walking down, and you fall into the pit, and they trap you. That's what the Antichrist is going to do. These verses tell you that the same pit and the same net that the Antichrist put for Israel, he falls in his own net. He says, for without cause have they hid for me their net in a pit, Psalm 35, 7, which without cause they have digged for my soul. Let destruction come upon him at unawares, and let his net that he hath hid catch himself into that very destruction. Let him fall. See that? He's talking about the Antichrist there. Psalms 57, 6, they have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have digged a pit before me into the mist whereof they are fallen themselves. See that thing? Now, doctrinally, that's a picture of the Antichrist digging a pit, putting a net across it, camouflaging it, trying to catch the nation of Israel. That's the example. Now, along with that, you're going to want Job 18.8, Job 19.6, Lamentations 1.13, Hosea 5.1, and Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Many other places in the Bible. Now, doctrinally in the Old Testament, again, every time you find the word net, it's going to deal with the context of the tribulation of the Antichrist setting them up. But now the doctrinal principle of this net and the Antichrist setting up the trap and destroying Israel sets for you and for me the great inspirational principle. The sinner who tries to entice you if you're smarter than the problem. The sinner who tries to take you. In other words, he gets caught in his own trap. You see... You live your life like you're getting ahead of God, don't you? You live your life and thumb your nose at God and think you're really making it big, don't you? You live your life, do your own thing, and think you don't need church, God, or anybody in it, don't you? Sure we do. That's exactly what we do. And that thinking is you setting up your own net for yourself because at the end, the lifestyle that you have without God, the lifestyle that you live and endorse yourself in that without God and the Word of God is going to be this trap that's going to take you. In life, the life of a wicked and treacherous, the life of a hunting, hurting people, the life of taking advantage of them, a life of walking in darkness, running to evil, shedding blood, a life of slander and deceit and dishonesty, a life of swallowing people up for your own gain. At some point in their life, they'll get taken in their own pit. At some point, they'll play the game just once too often, and they'll get trapped in their own game. I think the term is you live by the sword, you die by the sword. They'll get caught in their own net. They'll get caught in their own trap. This goes back to what we studied in the 10 uh, concepts of wisdom a couple of weeks ago when the young man talked about the young man getting instruction and getting wisdom, the ability to see the end of something before uh, it it happens. We talked about him having justice and judgment and equity. And then in chapter 1, verse 4, it says for him to have discretion. And I told you what discretion was. Discretion is the ability to not get involved in something. Discretion is the ability to not let you be enticed in something. Discretion is when they say, come join us, come do this, let's go do this together. The young man has discretion. He may want to do it. 
He may be tempted to do it. He may think, boy, I sure like to do it. But he has discretion. He has wisdom. And he knows that it's a dead end street. And he knows whatever he gets into at that point, he's smart enough because he's got discretion. And the end result is going to be a disaster. Would you go to work tomorrow morning if you knew for sure that when you walked in the door they were going to kill you? You'd call off sick. (laughs) Several days. (laughs) Would you go do something if you absolutely knew that it was going to be it was going to be your demise and it was going to kill you? I mean, would you is there anybody here that would say, yeah, I still go to work, I could be I could be I could beat it? You're crazy. But that's exactly what we do. The man who has discretion, who knows the principles and knows the Bible, he sees when sinners try to entice him. He understands what the world and sinners are all about. He realizes that a lifestyle without God with these things and the enticement in them is a dead-end street. And he's smart enough to know that he's not going to get in it because it's going to end someplace that he doesn't want to be part of. Don't find men like that today. It's the ability to stay away from certain people. It's the ability to stay away from their enticement. It's the ability to be smarter to keep your children away from any form of it. Because it winds up their lives are on a dead end street. And that's where you'll wind up. Their end will be the destruction of the family, destruction of their sons, the destruction of their daughters, and in time their own lives. They live their lives for themselves, and the young man, the son, with God's wisdom, has the ability to look beyond the calling of the sinner. Come join us. Do it this way. Oh, you ain't tried it. You ain't a real man, do you do it this way? You ain't really a man, do you try it like this? Come be with us. Oh, if sinners entice thee, come on, go over us. Let's go. You're smarter than that. He sees and understands that the enticement to take him away from the things that God has given him will only bring him to the same end. He is definitely, in every sense of the word, smarter than the problem. Get into that place in your life simply comes by you choosing that you're going to put the book and the principles of God in your life. Not to say you're not going to make mistakes. I'm not going to say you're not going to have problems. I'm going to say you're going to wind up at the end ten times smarter. You're going to see it for what it is. That's the whole book of Proverbs. That's what he's trying to get across to his son. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get him to see that, look, kid, you need to realize that when you become the king of Israel, there's going to be all kinds of situations out here that are going to entice you. And I'm telling you right now, when you become a child of God and you start to do something for God to get your millennial inheritance, to get your reward, the devil's going to throw every enticement at you he can. You need to be stronger and smarter than what comes your way. The only way you do it is with the book of Proverbs. You don't have the physical strength to do it. You don't have the physical capacity to be smarter. You've got to get the supernatural word of God in your life and let those principles dictate your life. The ability to separate the phony from the real. The ability to see it, stay away from it, because you have the ability and the wisdom to know and understand that it's a dead-end street. And you playing with it, you getting into it, you becoming a part of it is just going to make you miserable. You'll have one bad marriage after the other. You'll have one bad event after the other. You'll have one bad problem after the other. You'll lose your kids. You'll lose everything about it. You'll look back in your life at 40 and 50, and you'll say, you know what? That is the biggest mess I've ever saw in my life. Now, one of my kids is going to church. I don't go to church. My life's miserable. I'm not happy. I've been married four or five times. Gee, what could be wrong? If sinners entice thee, consent thou not. That'll end the second section. Let's have a word of prayer. I'll call you up here in about 10 minutes. We'll get our...